Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. What I want to do before we get into Hebrews chapter 8 tonight is to do a little bit of review because we're over halfway through the book. And sometimes as you get going through a book, you kind of want to remember what came before because it's an entire book. And each week we're looking at it in bite-sized chunks, but we need to kind of step back and and look at the whole book. So turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and I'll just give you guys an overview as far as what the book we've looked at so far. So in Hebrews chapter 1... The main point was that Jesus is exalted as the King of kings and Lord of lords in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He's superior to all. He's sovereign and superior over everything in the universe. That that was the way that the writer started. He's superior to the angels. And then if you go into chapter 2, you remember he said, don't drift. And looked at that metaphor of drifting away from the gospel. And, And it starts out with the drift. Um, so a drift means that you've got an anchor, but you're slow. It, drift is slow. It's slow. It's gradual. You're starting to drift. Then he talks about how Jesus came in the flesh at the rest of chapter 2, how Jesus died on the cross to propitiate God's wrath, to take God's wrath against sin. Then we go into chapter 3, and we talk about how Jesus is greater than Moses. Because who was the big guy that, the old, that, that they wanted to, to emulate that was their greatest person in their history? It was Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. And then chapters 3 and 4, if you remember, chapters 3 and 4 focus on that generation that was in the wilderness that provoked God to anger. They rebelled. They hardened their heart. And because of that, because of their unbelief, because of their rebellion, they were not allowed entrance into the promised land. If you remember, they died in the wilderness. And he made that point over and over again to the writers or to the readers of his, of his epistle. Don't do the same thing. Don't harden your heart. Don't rebel. Don't have unbelief. Because if you do, you won't enter the promised land. And it's not just the Old Testament promised land that was physical. We're talking about spiritually entering into heaven. Okay? And then... Um, Over and over again, there's one phrase that's used over and over again. If you remember, it's hold fast. I think it's like three or four times. The term hold fast, hold fast your confidence, hold fast your confession, hold fast to the faith, hold on tight. Because if you don't hold fast, what are you going to do? You're going to drift. And drifting, if not checked, leads to outright rebellion. And then outright rebellion, if you get to chapter 6, leads to what? Apostasy. So there's this dangerous progression of drifting slowly leads to rebellion, leads to a hard heart to where ultimately you commit apostasy and you put yourself in a place where it's impossible for you to be brought back to repentance if that happens. And so that's where chapter 5 comes into play. But Jesus has been introduced as a high priest. This was introduced at the end of chapter 4. We have a great high priest. And so this whole idea of Jesus being the high priest was introduced briefly at the end of chapter 4. In chapter 5, he introduces Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek. And if you remember what he says, he says, I could wish I could tell you more about who Melchizedek is, but you're sluggish of ears, and so I can't do that right now. I've got to address the fact that you need to grow up, get off the milk, start eating solid food. And then he goes into chapter 6, and he addresses that 
sin of apostasy. If you remember, it's impossible to bring somebody back to faith if they go all the way to falling away permanently from the faith. And then he says, this is not you guys. I know you as believers can't commit apostasy. Better things are in store for you. Faith, hope, and love. That's the way you guys are to live out your Christianity. And then he says, God made a promise. He talks about at the end of chapter 6, how God made a promise to Abraham, you remember, and God swore it with an oath. And so if God swore an oath to Abraham, it's the same God who's going to be faithful to you, and he's going to make that promise to you, and you are going to have um, the the promise of being blessed through Jesus. And then all chapter 7, what we looked at last week, Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. And we looked at the fact that Melchizedek was this shadowy figure that showed up back in Genesis for a few verses, and then it talks about him in Psalm 110. And what was the thing that you remember about Melchizedek? He's the only person in the Old Testament who at the same time was both a priest and a king. Okay, Nobody was a priest and a king. And remember what I said last week, none of you guys are losing sleep over the fact that Jesus is not from the lineage of Levi. You just aren't losing sleep over that. They were losing sleep over that. How can Jesus be a priest if he's from the tribe of Judah? Because the tribe of Judah aren't priests. The tribes of Levi are priests. And then he says, listen, Jesus is greater than the Levite priest. He's from the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the priest and the king. Okay? So let's go back to chapter 7, verse 22. And I want to show you the the things that we looked at last week that set up chapter 8. So in chapter 7, verse 22... This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, so Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Remember what word shows up over and over and over again in Hebrews? (coughs) Excuse me. It's the word better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus has a better covenant. Jesus has better promises. That's very, very important. And then we looked at last week... Verse 25, consequently, he's able, Jesus is able to save what? To the uttermost, completely, absolutely, those who draw near to God through him, (coughs) excuse me, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And we talked a lot about what the intercessory work of Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father. Um, He's a perfect priest, verse 26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, Innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Once for all. That's another important word in Hebrews. Once and for all. Now, what does that mean? (coughs) Once and for all. That's it. What, What was the word Jesus cried out when he was on the cross? It is halfway done, right? It is a hypothetical reality that I may possibly atone for your sins. No, what did he say? It is finished. And the way that the writer of Hebrews says it's a once and for all atonement, never to be repeated, totally sufficient. Jesus offered himself once and for all. And what's the importance of once and for all? Because what was the whole issue in the Old Testament? They had to keep offering sacrifices, what? Literally daily almost, but annually at the day of atonement to cover your sins and so in their mind sacrifice meant over and over and over and over again and what did the priest have to do he had to sacrifice for his own sins because he was a human and so jesus as the 
great high priest did not have to sacrifice for his own sins because he was perfect and sinless, and he gave himself, he offered himself once and for all as the perfect sacrifice. And so, chapter 8 we come to, and it answers this whole question, okay, Jesus did all this, but the question is, why is this better than what we had in the Old Testament? Why is Jesus better? Why is the covenant better? What makes this whole issue of Christ being the once and for all sacrifice, what makes it better than what these Hebrew Jews had been believing their entire life? So let's get to chapter 8 with that big long introduction. And this really divides up into two parts tonight. Part 1 is Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Okay, a better covenant. So let's read verses 1 through 7 and see how the writer of Hebrews expresses this. Now the point and what we are saying is this. I love it when a pastor says, here's my point. That's what he's saying. Here's my point. Here's my main point. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. All right, verse 1, he gives this point. And I think, I think chapter 8, verse 1 may be the point of the entire book of Hebrews theologically. Not, not so much the instruction, but theological point. Because he's introduced it in chapter 1, he introduced it in chapter 4, he introduced it in chapter 5, he introduced it in chapter 7, and now he gets to chapter 8 and he says, this is my point in case you didn't get it. And what's his point? His point is this. Jesus, as the high priest, has finished the work of our salvation on the cross and is now seated in the position of authority at the right hand of God in the throne room of heaven. His point is basically very simple. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Christ at the right hand of of God, seated because he's completed the work, ruling and reigning and interceding for us as the high priest. That's pretty much his point. And then he goes on to unpack what that means. And it goes back to Psalm 110. And I think I've mentioned this before. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, more than any other psalm. It's it's messianic in its nature. It's, It's all about Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is seated at the right hand. Now, Look at verse 2. He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Okay. On earth, back in the Old Testament, where did the priests minister? 
in the tent, okay, which is also called the tabernacle. And you guys tell me, what was the tabernacle? Does anybody remember what the tabernacle was? It was a large, it was a large structure, and it had, I'm kind of drawing it here. So you came in to the outer area, you had like a wash basin to get your hands washed, and then the priest would enter what was called the holy place. The holy place is where the candelabra was. You had what was called the bread of presence. You had the incense. This is where a lot of the, um, the activity went. Outside, like at the corners, would be where a lot of sacrifices were done, um, just the, the regular sacrifices. But then what was this one thing that he would go into one day a year? He would go into what? The holy of holies. And there's this curtain, okay, a curtain and he went into the Holy of Holies one day of year, one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement. And what did he have to do, that priest? He had to make atonement for his own sins first, but then he made atonement for the sins of the people in that Holy of Holies. And how long did it last? One year. Now let me ask you a question, and I'm going to get to it in just a moment, but I'll just throw it out there. Were all sins forgiven? on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies of the Israelites? Sins of what they call the high hand were not atoned for in the Holy of Holies. So even though this was the one day where all the sins were forgiven, it still was not a complete atonement for the nation of Israel because there were still some people whose sins were not covered and had to be put to death because their sins were so grievous. So this was not a full, absolute atonement of all sins. It was mainly for unintentional sins, sins of ignorance. It wasn't for high-handed, premeditated, rebellious sins. And we'll get to that later on. It's because it's important. Is this a complete atonement? Is this a type and shadow of what's to come? Okay, and that's what he's saying here. Look at verse 2. A minister in the holy places, Jesus is in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, does this literally mean that in heaven, Jesus is sitting in a tent? Or is it symbolic? It's, I think it's symbolic that just like the priest went into the holy of holies to make sacrifices, there is literally, or physically, or, or spiritually, whatever, there is a or metaphorically, in heaven right now, in God's very presence where God dwells in heaven in the throne room, Jesus is seated right there. Our men on Tuesday mornings are going through the book of Revelation. And just this yesterday morning, we looked at Revelation chapter 5, which tells us where Jesus is in the throne room as the Lamb of God who was slain. And so Jesus is right now in this proverbial holy of holies in heaven. But... Remember what I said, what was the one piece of furniture that was not in the, temp- the temple, the tabernacle? A chair. Why wasn't there a chair? The priest could never sit down because the job was never done. What is front and center in this tent, in this heavenly place? Jesus is seated, symbolizing it is finished. It is once and for all. 
Verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. What did Jesus offer? Did he offer bulls and goats? What did Jesus offer? Himself. Once and for all. So Jesus didn't come empty-handed into the Holy of Holies. He came with himself as the sacrifice. He's the priest and the sacrifice at the same time. He offered himself. And it says in verse 4, If he would have been on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since these priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve, verse 5, here's what he's saying in verse 5. The writer's point in verse 5 is that the old covenant sacrificial system was ordained by God to work for that specific time and place in redemptive history. But it was only a type and shadow picturing what God intended to be the real and final atonement, Jesus. So you may ask the question, why in the world, this, this question has been asked to me a lot, why did God institute that whole Old Testament sacrificial system if Jesus was going to come anyway and die on the cross? Why did, why did the whole Old Testament have to go through all that? Have you ever thought about that? Go ahead. Exactly. It wasn't as if God said, hey, I'm going to set up a system that's going to, kind of like God said, I'm going to set up a system that's going to fail to show you that it's going to fail because you can't keep it. So God has set up and God has ordained in the Old Testament that there would be a priesthood, there would be sacrifices, there would be day of atonement, there would be all these things. And in the key word there you see there in verse 5 is these serve as a copy and shadow. Do some of yours has type and shadow? A type, a, ty- a copy and a shadow, a type and a shadow. So this is an important concept in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of what we call types and shadows... types and shadows of the real thing that we find out in the new, which is Jesus and the gospel. So you may ask the question, well, why was there a tabernacle or tent in the Old Testament? It was a type and shadow of Jesus being the tabernacle. He's the true tabernacle. The nation of Israel was a type and shadow. Jesus is the true Israel. We are the true people of God. The whole issue of a vineyard in the Old Testament, a vineyard is a type and shadow of the nation of Israel, ultimately Jesus being the ultimate vineyard. I am the vine, you are the branches. So God does nothing by accident. Everything in the Old Testament was ordained by God, specifically in that point of time. Okay, But it was never meant to be the complete and final sacrifice. And that's his point there. Now, look at verse... Um, well, let's look at the rest of verse 5. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed and was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Okay, I'm going to briefly mention this Sunday morning, but Moses goes up on Mount Sinai for how many days? Forty days. And what's he doing up there? He's getting explicit instructions on how to construct the tabernacle. And what's going on down below? The people are getting impatient because he's been gone too long. That's what we're going to look at this Sunday is the golden calf. And so they can't wait for Moses to come down. But here it says he was given explicit instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And that's important. You go back and look at the book of Exodus and you're like, my goodness, this gets really boring. I mean, let's be honest. When you read Exodus, you're like, the whole building of the tabernacle, okay, it needs to have these ringlets and it needs to have this color and this embossed. And it needs to be this dimension. And you ask the question, why is it so detailed? Why can't God just say, Moses, go build it? Why is it so detailed? Because God wanted it to be that way. 
And God did. God gave Moses explicit instructions on how to make the tabernacle. It was very important that for the holiness of God to be expressed in the nation of Israel, they built things according to the most minute detail. Because it was an issue of holiness. It wasn't because God's anal retentive and needs things perfect. Okay, pardon the expression there. It's because God is holy and he wanted his people to be holy and set apart. Therefore, everything was down to the last minute detail of how God wanted them to be set apart from the pagan nations, even to the making of the tabernacle. We find this in Exodus 25, 40. God said, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Okay. So there was types and shadows and patterns and instructions. And basically the point is, for that period in redemptive history, it was God's sovereign plan to have a Levitical priesthood, animal sacrifices, holy of holies, tabernacle, day of atonement. It was called the Old Covenant. Now, when it was, when it was around, was it called the Old Covenant? It was just called the, the Covenant. It, it wasn't old yet because the new hadn't come. It was just what God had ordained. But here's the point. It was never meant to last forever. It was only a temporary picture. Think about that. A temporary picture, a snapshot of a future reality that would be permanent, the new covenant. That's why verse 6 is so important. What does verse 6 say? But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. Do your translations use the word excellent? Much more excellent or far superior to the... Superior, superior, excellent, better than what? The old, because the covenant he mediates is better because it's enacted on better promises. So here's the issue. God had an old covenant, and it worked for that time and that place, but it was never meant to be permanent. It was the old covenant. The old covenant came from... A lot of physical um, realities, um, washings and sacrifices and priestly garments and um, eating of foods and, and, and all these externals. And it was a picture and it was a shadow of, of what was to come. And so the question we've got to ask is this. The question is this. And verse 7 kind of tells us that. What is the new covenant and how is it better than the old covenant? Because what does verse 7 tell us? If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the first covenant was meant to be, to be the be-all, end-all, and be the final salvation, there would be no need for a second covenant or a new covenant. So the question is, what's the new covenant and why is it better? And why is it more superior than the old covenant? So that's where we get to the second section tonight. Part two, the superiority of the new covenant. <clears throat> so let's read the rest of the chapter, 8 through 13. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a what new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What you have here is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And by the way, right here, this quotation of Jeremiah is the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. Single quotation at one time. Which is important, because what is the quotation? It is God's promise from the mouth of Jeremiah of the New Covenant. So if you go back to Jeremiah, we won't go back there, but if you go back to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, it's, it's quoted verbatim here. So he quotes specifically what God spoke in the Old Testament. But what I want you to notice here is, and I, and I emphasized it when I read it, how many times God says what? I will. I think I counted seven times. Who alone is acting as king and giving this covenant? God is. Now, let's talk about covenants for a moment. Let's use a different word. There were two types of covenants in the Old Testament times in those nations. There was what was called a treaty, and there was what was called a royal grant. Okay? See if you guys can guess just by the terminology the difference between the two. What's a treaty? Two parties, so you have party A and you have party B. These two parties make an agreement on how they're going to hold up their end of the bargain. If, if party A messes up or breaks their part of the bargain, the treaty's broken. If, if party B breaks part of the treaty, it's broken. So it's dependent. What's, what's holding the covenant together in a treaty? The faithfulness of both parties. Okay? What's a royal grant? A king just says, I'm going to give it to you because I can give it to you. I don't expect anything in return. I know you can't hold up your end of the bargain. I'm giving it to you as an act of grace. Let me ask you the question. Was the Old Testament a treaty or a royal grant? It's a trick question. There's a combination of both. But here's the thing. The Old Covenant was a treaty of sorts. There were two parties and there were terms of the covenant especially in the book of Deuteronomy. God would bless the nation or God would curse the nation depending upon what? Let's say God is, let's say God is, 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 is um, party A in the treaty and the nation of Israel is party B. So if Israel holds up their end of the deal through what? Obedience, <coughs> they would be blessed. If Israel did not hold up their end through disobedience, they would be cursed. So what we're saying here is that everything about the Old Testament covenant, in a sense, was conditional upon obedience. Now let me just ask you a question. How does Israel do? How do they do? 
If it's conditional upon obedience, and let me ask you another question. How would you do? If God acted towards you in a treaty and said, hey, I'm going to come to you, Don. I'm going to come to you, Scotty, and here's what I'm going to do. I will bless you only to the extent that you're faithful to me, and I will curse you only to the extent that you are rebellious against me. Anybody afraid of that? Because what are we thinking? There's no way I can be obedient enough to keep up my end of the bargain. I better be praying for a royal grant because I'm helpless if it's a treaty. Now, let's turn to Exodus chapter 24. And I want you to notice the nation of Israel's response to God when he comes to them with this covenant. I want you to hear God comes to them down the mountain in Moses with the covenant and listen to what Israel says. So, go, so keep your finger in, in, in um, Hebrews chapter 8 or swipe or I don't know what you do, swipe or punch in or whatever. Um, so let's go to Exodus chapter 24 verses 1 through 8. Okay, Exodus chapter 24, 1 through 8. Let's, 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 see how, um, let's see this treaty work in the Old Testament. So let's see how Israel responds to the treaty, the covenant. <clears throat> then Moses said, oh, then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Why are the people not allowed to come up on the mountain? They're, they're not, yeah, they're going to defile. This is God's holy mountain, okay? Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And here's the, the point here. Listen to the people. Verse, the, the second part of verse 3. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What are they pledging there on the bottom of the mountain when Moses comes down with the law? What are they saying? We're going to do everything that God commands us to do. And we're unified in this. Until a few chapters later when the golden calf happens. We're going to talk about Sunday. Let's keep reading. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then the book of the covenant he took and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now look at that. They're becoming blood brothers with God, if you will. What does Moses do? Here's the covenant. And they say, we will obey the covenant. And Moses says, as a, as a symbolic way of so, showing you're serious, I'm going to throw some blood on you. As a symbolic way of saying this is a big deal. This is a covenant in blood. You're swearing right here at the base of the mountain that you are going to obey all the covenant. We will hold up our end of the treaty. Now, eventually, you just read your Old Testament. What do you find out? They don't, they don't, they don't. And eventually what happens at, at, the, end, like at the end of the reign of the kings, they go into 70 years of exile. God kicks them out of the promised land. God says as enough is enough. You become such an abomination, you become so rebellious, I'm kicking you out of the promised land. 
Now they get to come back. But here's the issue. This new covenant that God is making with us is not a treaty where he says, listen, it's only, the covenant's only as good as your end, of the, uh, your end of the bargain. Because go back to Hebrews for a moment. How many times does God say what? I will, I will, I will, I will. Does he ever say you're required to do this? Or is he just basically, it's, it is what we call a unilateral royal grant. Why is it unilateral? It's one way. Who's it coming from? <clears throat> God. Why is it a royal grant? Because God's the king. Why is it a grant? Because he's gracing us. And God's saying, listen, because I'm the king and I have the sovereign right to do this, I'm going to make a new covenant with you and I know you can't hold up your end of the bargain. So let me tell you why this covenant's going to be new and why it's going to be so much better. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at three glorious truths about the new covenant in Christ's blood that the book of Jeremiah tells us that's quoted here in Hebrews chapter 8, okay? So let's look at the first one. It's kind of a broad term um, theologically, but I think you can get it from, from the, the wording here. So here's first of all. We, as recipients of the new covenant, we receive the glorious truth of being born again by the Holy Spirit. Now you may say, well, I don't see that. Look at verse 10. What does he say? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days... I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. Okay. What does it mean that God's going to do something in our hearts and minds as opposed to the old covenant? What was the old covenant? In the old covenant, how did the law come to them? Externally on stone, given to the people to obey. They were required to obey and remain faithful, but yet it was external. It wasn't an internal transformation whereby the Holy Spirit would take up residence in them and give them the power to obey. That's the promise in the new covenant. The new covenant says the Holy Spirit is going to come and cause you to be born again, take up residence in your heart, give you a new heart, give you a new mind, give you the power to be able to obey because it's an inward transformation. Okay? And this was prophesied about even in the Old Testament. Exodus 31.18 And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. What was the covenant? It was on stone. Was the covenant ever written in their hearts? No, it was only external to them. But there was a promise there's kind of promises sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament of this future day when God would do a heart transformation. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Who's going to circumcise our heart? Now, what does that mean? Does it literally mean God's going to come cut our heart out? He's going to come and do a heart transformation so that we will be able to love the Lord your God with all your heart. So what's the greatest commandment? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. Can we in our own power do that? No. We have to be able to have a new heart. We have to be born again. We have to be able to we have to have that heart transplant. 
Um, listen to what Ezekiel 36, this is the famous passage. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I, this is God speaking again. This is almost very similar to the new covenant. This is Ezekiel's version. This is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's powerful. What's what's God saying? You've got a heart of stone. You've got a dead, unresponsive heart of stone that cannot obey. It cannot respond. It cannot do what God wants you to do. What has to happen? It has to be taken out and replaced with a new heart and a new spirit. And what do, we, that, what do we call that? We call that being born again. So one of the greatest promises of the new covenant is that God's, God's power, God's spirit is going to come from the inside and transform us and give us power and give us ability and give us desire to obey. Now, Jesus quotes this in the famous being born again passage. I mean, he directly refers to Ezekiel. Water, spirit. He's going to sprinkle us with water. He's going to put a new spirit within us. What is John, what is John 3, um, 3 through 7? He's talking to Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, unless one is born of water, I will sprinkle you with water, and the Spirit, I will put my Spirit within you. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The new covenant means that God is going to come and do an internal working on our hearts to cause us to be born again. He's going to wash us. He's going to regenerate us. He's going to renew us from the inside out. Titus 3, 4 through 6 says that. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration. I will sprinkle you with clean water and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I will put my Spirit in you whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So, that passage there in Titus actually uses the word regeneration through the power of the Holy Spirit, this internal washing, this internal spiritual transformation that's going to happen. I will write my law on your heart. I will give you a new spirit. I'll take out your heart of flesh, I mean your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, he's, he's basically saying, you know, when Moses was up on the mountain, he came down and he had the law written on stone tablets. You, on the other hand, listen to what he says about us. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of what? A new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Stone tablets don't do anything. They just show you. What what do the stone tablets show you? You are helpless to obey God. Can any human being live up to God's standards in and of themselves? Unless what happens? The Spirit comes in and gives life. 
And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, later on in that passage, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who's the Spirit. So when God the Holy Spirit comes and causes you to be born again and He puts this new heart in you, what ends up happening? You undergo a transformation where you get, become more and more like Christ. Now, that's the promise of the new covenant, uh, this new heart, this new mind, this, this Holy Spirit regeneration. But here's a practical question. How does this new heart impact the way we live? Should it make a difference? If you have a new heart, should it make a difference on how you live? If you're truly saved, what does that mean? You are born again and you have new desires, new affections, and you have a totally brand new life. So if you are living the same way you did as when you were before a Christian, that you are now as a Christian, what do you need to ask yourself? Have I, have I, yeah, have I really been given the new heart? Because not that you're ever perfect, but what will the new heart do? It will evidence itself in fruit. Now, let me show you a passage of Scripture that's confusing. Not confusing, but I'll, I'll explain it to you. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 gives us something here. Therefore, my beloved, as you, as you, always, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as much in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what is the responsibility we have as Christians? To obey Jesus. To work out, not work for your salvation, but work it out. How can you do that? You can't. If all you had was verse 12, it would be very depressing. Because what, verse 12 by itself would say what? You have got a responsibility to obey God. Thank you. See you later. Never going to do it. If verse 12 was by itself, we would be hopeless. Now, there's a responsibility. There's a human responsibility. You and I have the responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to obey. For, verse 13, for it is, who's working in you? God is working. And what is God doing? He's, he's working both to will and to work. To will and to work. So unregenerate men, a person who's not a Christian, cannot do two things. You do not have the, the, um, you don't have the ability to obey and please God, and you don't have the desire. You don't have the will to do it. You don't have the ability to do it. You don't have the desire to do it. You don't have the ability to do it. No non-Christian out there, even if they, they may be fooling themselves for a while, but no non-Christian has ultimately a desire to love Jesus in their heart of hearts, and no non-Christian has the ability to do it. And the, the question is, why? Because they don't have the new birth. They still have a heart of stone. They haven't had that transformation. But what happens? Through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, through His indwelling power, His work, these two things now are a reality in the life of a believer. Now, as a born-again Christian, you have the desire to love and obey Jesus, and you have the ability. So no Christian can say, I can't and I don't want to. And be honest. 
You can't say I can't because you have the Holy Spirit giving you the ability. You can't say I don't want to because the Holy Spirit gives you the desire. When you say I can't and I don't want to, you're operating in the flesh and not living according to the way that God wants you to live. And you're believing a lie that you can't do it through His power. Romans 8.13 says this, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have a responsibility to keep on continually putting to death the deeds of the body, killing sin. How do we do that? By the Spirit. Colossians 3, 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So number one blessing, the first blessing in the new covenant that Jesus, as the high priest, has purchased for us that was prophesied by Jeremiah, the writer of Hebrews is drawing our attention to, is number one, you will have a born-again experience where the Holy Spirit will come and do an inner heart transformation to give you the ability, the desire to obey and do this inward transformation. Let's just see it again. Verse 10. This is a covenant I will make with them on the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. Okay? But here's the second blessing of the new covenant. If that wasn't great enough, here's the second blessing. We receive the glorious truth of being brought into intimate fellowship with the Father. Notice what verse 10 says. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This was really the substance of the Old Covenant. If you go look, especially in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will be your God. You will be my people. Leviticus 26.12, And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And so all the way through the Bible is this promise that God's going to be our God, we're going to be His people. Now here's the question. Is everybody God's people? Everybody's God's creation, but is everybody, is everybody God's child? No. Only those who've been adopted into His family through Christ. So we take for granted that we're God's people and He's our God, but that's not true for everybody. There is creation, but... A non-Christian can't say, he's my God and I'm his people. Not until they've trusted Christ for salvation. Because look at what's going to happen in Revelation. This is what the book of Revelation describes as our new destiny. Our final destiny. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now you may say, well, duh. Yeah, we're, we're God's people. Why is that such a great thing in the new covenant blessing? Well, what this speaks of is the blessing of adoption. The wonderful news that God through Christ has adopted us into his family, calls us his own, we are his children, we are his people. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. It's a right and privilege you have to be a child of God that only comes through receiving Christ. Romans 8, 14-16 For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption 
as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You can call God, God your daddy in a very intimate way because the Holy Spirit has come, taken up residence in you through Christ's death and the adoption that you've been into His family. That a non-person can't do that. How does a non... Let's just talk about this for a moment. We as Christians relate to God as our loving Heavenly Father, do we not? And we can approach Him with intimacy. We can approach Him as a God who loves us. He cares for us. He's merciful. He's our Heavenly Father. How does a lost person approach God until, the, until they're a, like not, not when they're not a Christian? Is He their Father yet? He's their judge. And how do they approach Him? With fear, maybe with anger, maybe with rebellion. Until they become adopted into His family through Christ, they relate to God as judge. And if they die in their sins, He won't be father to them, He will be judge to them. So it is a privilege for us to be in, in the Father's care as His children. Um, I love 1 John 3, 1 through 2. Um, see or behold, I just think of the old song, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. I don't know if you remember that song, but see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we, will, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. See what kind of, When He uses that word see, it's an emphatic way of saying, look how awesome it is that we're actually called children of the living God. And that's what we really are. And as our loving shepherd, as our God in this new covenant, I will be their God, they will be my people. God the Father is a good God who loves to give good gifts to His children. What does Matthew seven eleven say? If you then who are evil people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Is God a stingy God? No. As your heavenly Father, He gives good things to those who ask Him. What's an example of a good thing the Father gives you? Well, let's hear what Luke has to say. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? <clears throat> Matthew says good things. Luke says the Holy Spirit. And then James 1, 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I will be their God. They will be my people. Now, let's just look at this theme of intimacy here. Look at verse 11. Back in Hebrews again. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one of his brothers saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of these to the greatest. He's not saying that we're not going to teach anymore, that we don't need teachers or pastors. What he's saying here is this. Everyone will know the Lord. That word know, especially back in um, the Hebrew, is yada, which conveys an intimate knowledge. When you become a Christian, it's not this distant knowledge that you have of God anymore. It's this intimate personal close up knowing god not secondhand but personally intimately okay um 
John 6, 44-48, Jesus hints at this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. (coughs) Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And I want you to notice, what's this say right there at the very end of verse 11? They shall, who? Some of them will know me. The priests will know me. Maybe a few prophets will know me. And, and a couple of um, really important kings. What does it say? They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This knowledge in the new covenant, it's, it, it, this intimate knowledge of God will be not just for priests or prophets, but all of God's people. Think about who in the Old Testament had really only had intimate access to God. The high priest. Could your average Israelite actually sacrifice for himself? He had to bring the sacrifice. Could he ever even enter the tabernacle? Could he ever go in the Holy of Holies? Did your average, the only, the closest your average Israelite got was maybe when they were at the base of Mount Sinai and they heard the voice of God or they saw the pillar of smoke and they saw the pillar of fire. Nobody had intimate access to God except for the priests and the prophets. But here it says, from the greatest to the least of them. Okay, so number one blessing, the new birth, the, the, the new heart of stone taking out with the heart of flesh, um, given you know, the, this whole inner transformation. Blessing number two, you will be known by God, adopted in his family, and have this intimate knowledge of God. And what's the third blessing of the new covenant? The glorious truth of being totally and absolutely forgiven of all sins. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward the iniquities, and I will... Remember their sins no more. Now, did God forgive sin in the Old Testament? Yes. There's a lot of verses that talk about God's loving kindness and forgiveness in the Old Testament. Probably the most famous place is in Exodus 34, 6-7. This is Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's to the third and fourth generation. Does this not speak about God's love, His steadfast love, His forgiveness? Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions. Where do the east and west meet? They don't. <clears throat> Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Micah seven nineteen. he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So there was a truth under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. There was the promise that believers could cast themselves upon God's mercy for forgiveness. And that's not worded correctly. Oh, yeah. God, yeah, it is. Believers could cast themselves upon God's mercy for forgiveness of major sins like murder and adultery. And we have an example of that. Who's the one person that got forgiven of murder and adultery? Really the only person we see that gets a free, I'm going to say free pass. Who's the one person that doesn't get punished, per se? 
I mean, he has to live with the consequences. We spent all those sunny mornings. David, when David sinned with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, he should have gotten the death penalty, should he have not? You guys remember back on those sermons? David, what was the penalty for adultery? Death. What was the penalty for murder? Death. Did God do either of those to David? No, he forgave his sins. Nathan came to him and said, your sins are forgiven, but you're still going to have consequences. So, here's the thing. Even for David, God made an exception with David because of the lineage of Christ and and God's sovereign plan. For David or any other Israelite, there was no provision of forgiveness of what were called high-handed sins in the old covenant system. Remember I talked about that? The death penalty was by stoning. So, let me say it again. Under the old covenant were all sins totally forgiven. No. Under the new covenant are all sins forgiven. Yes, that's the major difference. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 15 for a moment. So keep your finger in Hebrews and go back to Numbers 15. We see this. Um, Numbers 15, 22 through 36. You guys mind if I open the door to make, get some air going in? Get some air going in here. All right. And when the youth come down the hall, we'll close the door. All right, so Numbers 15, 22 through 26. If you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to by Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day the Lord gave commandments and onward through your generations, then if it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation will offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. And they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven, and the stranger who sojourns among them because the whole population was involved in the mistake. Hear the words there? Mistake. Unintentional sin. Sin of ignorance. Verse 27. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for them, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But, verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he's despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, and that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Forgiveness for unintentional sins, forgiveness for mistakes, forgiveness for ignorance, but if you sin with a high hand, what's the Bible saying here? No luck, Jack. You're going to be cut off. And what it means cut off means you're going to be kicked, you're going to be killed. Now, you may say, well, what's an intentional sin and what's an unintentional sin? What's the sin of a high hand? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because if you keep reading, you find it out. The the writer Moses here in, in this account gives us an example of this. So, and you may think this is no big deal, but look at verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on a Sabbath day. 
that's not okay. So maybe he needed to get firewood for his family. Maybe he needed to, you know, get some. Maybe you know, who, who cares? He, he's what's he doing? Not, no big deal, right? He's just gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Aaron and Moses to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought outside the camp and stoned to, and all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Was he what could have happened there? Wait a minute, we need to have an atonement. I didn't mean it. It was unintentional. Let me bring a goat. Let me bring a heifer. Let me bring it to the high priest. Let me get my sins forgiven. It was a mistake. What does God say? That's a high-handed sin. Why is it a high-handed sin? What's he doing? He's breaking the Sabbath. Now, back then, under that um, time frame, God was very strict about the Sabbath. Now, when Jesus comes, what does Jesus do? What's he doing? He's picking grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees get mad at him, and Jesus says, you know, man was made for the Sabbath, not Sabbath for the man. And so there's, there's, there's a little bit of difference between how we treat the Sabbath today versus back then. But back then, under that time frame, what was the point? The point was, this was a high-handed sin that deserved death. And the point is, there was never a time in Israel's history when... Any, any and all and every sin could be forgiven. Okay? So here's the question. How is the new covenant more superior than that old covenant system in relation to sin? There is not one sin that Jesus can't forgive through His finished work on the cross. High-handed or not? Is there any sin that Jesus won't forgive or can't forgive? No. Now, obviously, that forgiveness is not automatic. You need to repent and believe and trust. But there's nobody so far gone and so far sinful that they've sinned themselves out of God's grace. His grace extends to the greatest of sinners. Now, you may ask the question, Jesus is the guarantor of the new covenant. Here's the last question, and it's not in Hebrews, but it's a question to think about. How was this new covenant inaugurated or started or fulfilled? The writer of Hebrews is talking about the new covenant that was already established by Jesus. Jesus is in heaven as the guarantor of the new covenant. But when did it all start? And here's the answer. On the night of his betrayal, when Jesus was leading his disciples through celebrating the Passover, Jesus institutes or inaugurates the new covenant. Now let's look at some of these verses. Matthew 26, 26 through 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he given thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant. Okay? Luke says it like this. Luke 22.20 says this. 
And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the, what? New covenant in my blood. So here's the point. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. And what did Jesus do? He poured out his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. He died as a substitute on the cross for sinners. So, it started at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. That's where he started talking about the New Covenant. It was finished in his work on the cross. Now he's in the right hand of the Father, seated in heaven as the high priest, mediating and being the guarantor of the New Covenant. So here's the question. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what are we celebrating? The new covenant. The fact that we've been born again. The fact that we have access to God. The fact that all of our sins are being forgiven. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the what? New covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's talk. This is not in your notes, but let's just talk a little bit about the Lord's Supper. We're going to go on a little tangent about the Lord's Supper. Is that okay? I'm going to give you, well, there's four major views of how to understand the Lord's Supper. Okay? Historically, church history, there's four major views of how Christians have celebrated the Lord's Supper. Okay? And I'm not going to use the big words because they're just going to confuse you, but let's just call it the Catholic one. Okay? There's the Roman Catholic view. Again, this is not in your notes. I just kind of decided, actually, I'm doing this off the cuff because we, we have some time and we're done. So let's um, spend the last few minutes doing this. Um, the Catholic view basically is the view that when, well, here's the Catholic view. The vicar of Christ pulls Jesus down from heaven as a victim on the table, sacrifices him afresh, and when you actually partake of the elements, you are literally eating the body and blood of Christ. So they believe in the literal like literally, the literal. So when you are taking the Eucharist, you are literally feasting on the literal blood and body of Christ. Literally. Okay. Number one, this kind of makes a mockery of Hebrews because what does Hebrews say? It was once and for all. Where is Jesus now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Is Jesus a victim that's pulled down and sacrificed afresh? No. So I would say that this is, a, this is a view that you can reject as an unbiblical view of the way to take the Lord's Supper. Okay? Now, there's the Lutheran view, which is a modified Catholic view. The Lutheran view would say it's not necessarily like the literal body and blood of Christ when you're taking the Lord's Supper but you, there, there's definitely a, like 
an element to the physical nature of it. Okay? So I would say, for lack of a better term, I would call it Catholic light. Is that, a, I mean, without, without all of the meanings of the Eucharist that the Catholics throw into it. But the Lutheran view does see a heavy, a heavy um, understanding of the physical nature of the elements themselves. Okay? There's what we would call the Reformed... Um, uh, let's call it the Reformed or the Calvinistic or the um, maybe the Presbyterian view. This view states that it's not physical. There's, it's, obviously, it's not physical. But there is a deeply spiritual aspect that it's a, what's, what's called a means of grace. Oh, by the way, this is a sacrament, meaning... The Catholic view is a sacrament, meaning what? If you don't take that, you're not saved. It's, it's a way of keeping you saved. Okay. Um, now, the Reformed Calvinistic or Presbyterian view says it's a means of grace. Not a means to save you, but a means of grace. Now, let me ask you a question. What are other means of grace that God uses to nourish and to um, refresh and to encourage your heart? What are some means of grace that the, that the Bible tells us that God does? And I'm thinking of two big ones. Through preaching of the Word, preaching and reading the Word, and prayer. So ask me a question. Are you being spiritually impacted? Are you being fed? Are you being nurtured when somebody's preaching or teaching you the Word of God? Is that a means of grace God uses to strengthen you? Is prayer a time that you're being strengthened in your, in your faith? It's a means of grace that God is nourishing you and strengthening you spiritually. Is there a spiritual aspect to preaching? Is there a spiritual aspect to prayer? Okay. What the covenant Presbyterian Reform view says is the Lord's Supper is no different. The Lord's Supper is a way that God nourishes you. It's a way that God spiritually feeds you. It's a way that God strengthens you. And so when you take the Lord's Supper, it's just another way that God deeply spiritually meets you in corporate worship. Okay? The Baptistic view basically says it's only a memorial or it's only a symbol looking back at what Jesus did but there's, no, there's nothing really spiritually as a means of grace in the Lord's Supper. It's more just we're remembering what Jesus did looking back. But, but it's not really... We're, we're, it's, it, we're looking back at what he did in history, but we're not actually, in a sense, communing. It's not necessarily communing with him as a means of grace. It's totally symbolic or a memorial. That would be like the extreme Baptistic view. Okay? Now, what view do I hold I actually am like somewhere between these two right here because I believe it's a memorial. I believe it's a symbol. I believe we're to do it in remembrance of him. I believe we're to look back at what Jesus did on the cross, but I also believe there's a deeply spiritual aspect of it, not where the body and the blood or the, the elements literally become the body and blood, but I do believe that there's something inherently spiritual when we take the Lord's Supper that it's a means of grace that God nourishes and he, and he feeds you. And there's something about why, did, why would God choose physical elements? Okay. In preaching, what does what God use to feed you? 
your ears. <clears throat> in praying, what does God use to feed you? Your heart and your mind. In the Lord's Supper, what does he choose to feed you with? Literal elements. Um, it, it could have just been anything he chose, but he chose literal elements to represent that. And not that there's anything magical about the elements that you're taking in and of themselves, but the whole process of being in a corporate worship service where there has been the preaching of the word, there has been prayer, there has been true worship, to follow that up with communion is just another way for God to spiritually meet you as an act of grace to nourish and strengthen you where I think sometimes the extreme Baptistic view takes a little bit of the spiritual aspect of it and looks at simply as the memorial, looking back at what Jesus did, but not looking at how he's meeting you right now in the present through the Lord's Supper. Does that, does that make sense, or do I need to explain that? Is, is that confusing, or is that... <coughs> Lori, you look questioning. Well, I always thought <coughs> that uh, I was looking forward as well. And looking, yeah. I guess Yeah, and I didn't get to that, yeah. This is off the cuff. I'm glad. You, yeah, really, the, the way you look at the Lord's Supper is, I think it's, here's the way I look at it. It's a look back. You're looking back at what Jesus did. It's a look around to those who are part of the body of Christ with you, who are celebrating it with you. It's a look up to Christ right now and how he's ministering to you. And it's a look forward to the fact that Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be the final marriage supper of the Lamb. So I think all aspects of those are important in the Lord's Supper. A look back, a look around, a look up, and a look forward. Um, and let me just say this. Sometimes we can over... We can, we can look at the Lord's Supper as this whole idea that if we're not worthy enough to take it, we... Sometimes we come. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Sometimes I think we come with fear and trembling too much to the Lord's Supper, wondering if we're worthy enough to take it. That we almost take away the fact that it's Christ feeding us and not us actually um, serving Him. Whose supper is it? Do you feel the same way about prayer? Do anybody feel like I'm not worthy? Sometimes I'm not worthy to pray. I'm not worthy to listen to a sermon. Well, are you worthy to take communion? Anybody here worthy to take communion? No. But what happens in communion? Christ is meeting you at your need and spiritually sustaining you through that experience. Now, it does say examine yourselves. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. And it does talk about having personal relationships being um, right so that you don't do that because people were dying because of the way they were acting. Yes, Tiffany. So they have water in it with it? It's water. It's not juice. Huh. It's water. Huh. And it's bread. And they say that it's like you're renewing the covenant every Sunday. You're renew they do it every Sunday. Hmm. And they say that you're renewing the covenant. So covenant renewal ceremony. Yeah, I would have a problem with it. Being, I would have it. I mean, yes. Okay. This is getting into some deeper theology. But in some sense, in some sense, baptism is tied to, okay, Here's a big theological question, big debate. Let me, just, let, me, let me get to the debate. Let me answer your question. I don't see using water in the Lord's Supper because Jesus says the fruit of the vine 
and he talks about the cup of the covenant, and probably it was probably wine that Jesus used. We're just, you know, we use grape juice because we don't want to offend anybody. But, but, you know, that's another debate. Do you use real wine? Do you use grape juice? Um, do you use Welch's? Do you use generic? Do you have gluten-free wafer? Do you have, you know, so, you know, we got all these, like, gluten-free stuff now, and it's like, so um, I, think, I think that's, that's taking it a little bit further away than what Jesus did. But here's the question. Here's a big debate. Open or closed communion means this. Some churches say only members in good standing who've been baptized can take communion. Other churches say we open the table up to all who've confessed faith in Christ and it's up to them to make the decision. Some people say you have to be, um, you don't have to be a member, but you have to be baptized to take the Lord's Supper. Um, some people at churches say, you know, well, who are we to fence the table? You know, it's between you and the Lord. Who take it? Let your conscience be your conscience. Um, so there's a bunch of arguments about how you, and it's called fencing the table. How do you make sure, as pastors and elders in a church, that only those who are the proper candidates of taking the Lord's Supper take it? Okay. Now, here's my argument for why little children should not take the Lord's Supper. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Number one, what, let's just talk about bat- I'm going way off track here, but it's, these are important things. What's the importance of baptism? What does baptism do? Is baptism to be celebrated over and over again? Baptism is once. Baptism by immersion under the water after you've confessed faith in Christ is your way of what? Saying publicly that you identify with Christ. Okay. So baptism is a public identifying testimony going under the water that you've been buried with Christ, you've been raised with Christ. It's a, it's a symbol of you dying to your old self and rising again. It's a once and for all entry requirement into the church, into the life of Christ, okay? It's only once, okay? okay. Is it very important? Yes. Is it an act of obedience? Yes. Does it save you? No, but it's very, very important, Okay. Does the New Testament know of any person who professed faith in Christ that wasn't baptized? No. Okay? So, baptism is very, very important. Okay, is the Lord's Supper only to be administered once? No, Jesus says, as often as you do this. So, there's some freedom. You know, some churches do it every week. We do it once a month. I think if you don't do it often enough, like if you do it once a year, that's probably not, like, often enough. Um, So, the question is, should only baptized believers take the Lord's Supper, what do you do with little children when it's passed around and parents, everybody's taking it and your, your kid's taking it and you don't know what to do and it's like, you know, I don't want to say no to my kid and cause a scene in the middle of church and I think they're a Christian but I'm not sure but they haven't been baptized. I mean, all those questions that parents deal with and it's like, why are we having this on Sunday morning? Why can't you have it on Sunday night where there's no kids? Well, you know, that's, that's, a, that's some people say that's how way Emmanuel used to do it. When Sean, you came, you messed everything up because now it's on Sunday mornings and it used to be on Sunday nights when it was a closed communion and we knew members were taking it and we didn't have all these problems. And so when you started doing it on Sunday mornings, you messed everything up. Um, but anyway, go to, um, I'm not saying, I mean, some people have said that to me in joking. Actually, some elders have told, told me that in joking. The way we used to do it, we didn't have these problems. Um, so um, look here at... Okay, look, look at verse 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. This is right after what I just read about the Lord's Supper. So look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Whoever, 
therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And here's what it says, verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So let me ask you a question. Can your four-year-old child do verses 28 and 29? Can they examine themselves to see if they're taking it in a worthy manner? And can they discern the body and blood of Christ and know what they're doing? Okay, so the question then becomes, if they can't do that, should they be taking it? Probably not. Um, not that they're going to, you know, drink judgment upon themselves because if you're, if you're lost, you're already, until you get saved, there's already judgment upon you. Um, so the question I first would say is, number one, children need to, you need to be careful letting children take Lord's Supper because are they able to do that? Okay. Number two, I think it's important, and we don't enforce this as much as the manuals as we probably should. I really think it should be only baptized believers because why would you celebrate the Lord's Supper and take advantage of that covenant renewal ceremony, but not be baptized. You understand what I'm saying? Christy, I mean, you guys, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, but I mean, you guys struggle, not struggle, but you guys, when you guys didn't struggle with that, but when you came to Emmanuel, you guys had grown up in, was it a Lutheran or Presbyterian? And so, yeah, and so, and you guys got baptized as adults, and so, and it was important, and so, you know, and it was just a thing that you guys did in obedience to Christ. I'm trying to think of other adults. How many of you guys got baptized in Emmanuel as an adult? You got, yeah, Bonnie got baptized. You know. So there's a... I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Uh, yeah, Kate tells she was baptized. And so it's hard to police these things because you don't want to be legalistic. But at the same time, you really want to make sure that you're doing it biblically. Um, and there's no specific verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not take the Lord's Supper if thou aren't baptized. There's no verse that says that. So you can't point to a verse and say that. But I would say this. What is the identifying mark that you are a Christian that gives you publicly in an assembly of worship that you have the right to take the Lord's Supper because you've identified yourself as a Christian? What's that marker? Baptism. So if you haven't been baptized, then the question is, why haven't you been baptized? And when I say baptized, I don't mean like I was sprinkled as an infant. I mean, have you come to that point when... You've trusted Christ personally. It's your decision. You knew what you were doing. And after that point in time, you went under the waters of baptism, came back up as a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, as a symbol of your old heart dying and God giving you a new heart, and you publicly testifying to everyone that that change has taken place. Um, and so the baptism is the introduction, introductory aspect into the Christian life publicly, that you publicly let everybody know that you're a Christian. And then the Lord's Supper is the ongoing way that we as a body celebrate the fact that we are Christians and we receive that, that grace. Does that make sense tonight? Is there any other questions on that or comments? I didn't even want to go down that path tonight. Yes? So I understand what you're saying that, you know, you shouldn't really take it if you haven't been baptized. What would you say if, like, I was baptized when I was in the elder church? Well, we need to talk about. We're going to talk about that. Has one of the elders contacted you guys yeah, about meeting? Going to talk to us Sunday. Okay, and I'm talking to you Sunday. Yeah. So, can we hold that conversation to when you guys? Because you just went through the membership class, and we're talking about baptism, and that may be a question that we talk 
about a few guys on that. So is that is that okay? Okay. I do have something. Yeah. When I was uh, when I was going to the Jehovah Witness Church, uh, they did the Lord's Supper once a year, but you were told that if you take the Lord's Supper and you don't know you're going to heaven, you'll be condemned. Hmm. Sounds to me like a like a, that treaty where you hold up your end of the bargain if you. Because number one, I, Jesus says, as often as you drink this, and I think that's a legalistic, almost cultic way of making people feel guilty, and um, as opposed to the Lord's Supper, you don't come to the Lord's Supper with guilt. Now you may come with guilt, but the Lord's Supper is a means of grace to strengthen your soul to show you. When, hopefully, when you're done with the Lord's Supper, you've been refreshed to know that your sins have been forgiven past, present, and future, and you have the new covenant. You've been born again. You have access to the Father. Your sins have been forgiven. You have that relationship with Christ. He's met you. He's nourished you. You have a church family that loves and supports you that's taking it together. Hopefully that's what you feel after the Lord's Supper, not walking away saying, man, man, if I, you know, if, if I didn't do enough this, this year to be worthy of it, I'm going to go to hell. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, sir, you had a question back Well, yeah, the, que- the, the, the answer to your question is, like, the, I guess the question you're asking is, when would we require somebody to be rebaptized? Based upon Is that the kind of the ultimate question you're getting to? Okay, and here's the answer to that question. If in your, here's the criteria. If, if you've been baptized in, in a previous church or previous experience, here's the criteria. Number one, it had to be after you personally had faith in Christ, not as an infant. Number two, it had to be under the water by immersion. Number three, it had to be in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because some churches are like the oneness only. They baptize just in the name of Jesus, not in the name of the Holy Trinity. And then number four, we would prefer it to be a church of like faith and practice, which doesn't necessarily have to be Baptist, but be like a Bible-believing church that's similar. Um, And so the answer to hers is that hers would not qualify. The LDS would not qualify, number one, because their church is not like faith and practice. Their beliefs are so far different than ours that we would require them to get rebaptized as what we would believe true Christians. And they would even say themselves what they were doing before. Does that answer your question? Somewhat. Okay. Well, let me give you an illustration, and, and I don't know if you're married or not, but when, you're, when you get married, you can have a ceremony between you and your wife and say, hey, let's do the secret little eloping thing and never wear a ring. But you're not letting the world know publicly that we're making a commitment to one another, we're wearing a ring to show that we're committed to one another. So a wedding ceremony is a way to let the world know that you are committing yourself to each other, very personal, but you're inviting the world to see it, and then there's a symbol of that by a wedding ring. 
Baptism is the same thing. It's a very private and personal thing that you're doing between the Lord, but it's also a public thing where you're letting everybody know, this is what I'm doing publicly to identify myself with Christ. And kind of the wedding ring I'm wearing that I'm, that I'm saved is this public act of baptism where I'm doing it publicly as a testimony to others that they can rejoice with me, they can, they can celebrate with me, and, I, and I'm publicly doing this as a way to show everybody that it's not a private thing. Does that... Does that you may not agree with that, but it's just a, it's kind of a, a, a different way to think about it. 